this is the keynote panel discussion on the universe, the brain, and second life. You can't say that we don't tackle big topics. As Woody Allen said, is there a God, and have you ever tried getting a dentist on a Sunday? Nor can one say that we don't have a sufficiently star cast to address these big issues. Philip Rosedale is founder and chairman of Linden Lab and creator of Second Life. Baroness Susan Greenfield is professor of synaptic pharmacology at Lincoln College, Oxford, and director of the Royal Institution of Great Britain and the leading expert on the physiology of the brain. Alan Musk is co-founder of PayPal and who is co-founder of SpaceX and chairman of Tesla Motors and Solar City is at the forefront of space travel and other newly emerging industries. That we have such a star cast of speakers is in no small part due to the fantastic amount of work that people here in the business school have put into organizing today. I'd particularly like to mention Afua Osei, who has worked relentlessly at organizing today's event. Uh, Fiona Reed, who is executive director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, has provided the leadership to make today happen. Deborah Lisbon, who has made it all happen, and Victor, Reed, uh, uh, Victor Sidel, who has provided the academic lead for today. Uh, I'd also just like to thank Tony Hart, Stephen Todd, and Laura, uh, Laura Milnes, who've provided a lot of input for today. Finally, I'd like to thank the sponsors, uh, Cedar, Meltwater, Baker, and McKenzie, and Norton Rose, who've provided the funding uh, for today's events. I should just also mention two other people. Uh, Mike Malone, who was mentioned earlier on by the Vice-Chancellor, uh, having been instrumental in getting the whole of uh, Silicon Valley going from its earliest days. Uh, and I just want to mention one other person, Maria Sender, who I think is the only other person who's been to every single one of the eight uh, Silicon Valley events. If there's anyone else who's uh, done that, uh, they should make themselves known. But I think that that's probably the case, uh, that between you, Mike and Maria, you have been uh, the only people here at literally every one of these events. So I'm now going to hand over to Ian Golden, who is the director of the James Martin 21st Century School, to lead the panel discussion. Thank you very much, Colin, and thanks for giving me this great privilege of chairing uh, this session. This is, I think, about the most fun thing uh, I've done for a very long time. These are tremendous people uh, who are on the panel. Uh, the structure is going to be that they're each going to speak for no longer than 15 minutes. I've got them to I'm sitting in front of them. I will hold up my hand and stop them. I'm sure they can manage that. And, uh, and then we'll have a short panel discussion up here and open it up. Uh, and I hope that we'll have at least half an hour for discussion uh, with the floor. These individuals are all thinking about here, there, and everywhere, and how we put it together. They are people who are amazingly have been able to not only penetrate other worlds, the second life worlds that Philip has so brilliantly assembled uh, over a million people a day in a second life. And for those of you that haven't uh, heard about the second life, I'm sure uh, you could speak to anyone under about 30 and they'll help you through it. 
but it is a most remarkable feature. It's spread around like wildfire, uh, and remarkably, it hasn't suffered a financial crisis. Uh, they have an economy, the economy interacts with ours, and it's a stable one, so you have a couple of things to teach financial regulators and bankers. Uh, Elon uh, has been a serial entrepreneur, amazingly, uh, in a very short period of time, from co-founding uh, PayPal to Tesla Motors, uh, many other things, and now, of course, the X rocket, uh, which has been chosen by NASA uh, to help explore the space. Absolutely extraordinary amount of achievement in an amazing compressed period of time. Again, pushing the frontiers, combination of ideas, entrepreneurship, and incredible ability to manage and get things done. And Susan Greenfield, who's the director of the 21st Century Schools Institute of the Future of the Mind at Oxford University, also director of the Royal Institution, thinking about what this does for the brain, uh, what, how the brain works, and how we may sort ourselves out while we're sorting out the universe. So a fantastic cast. I don't want to take up their time. Without further ado, Philip, the floor is yours. Well, thanks everyone for having me. This is quite a group. Uh, the, the diversity of people, both as attendees and, and here at the school, is fascinating to see. I, it's been a delight to have Second Life uh, grow as much as it has because I've gotten to travel and, and uh, meet people like the ones that I've met here. Um, so thank you. I, I thought that what I might do is just pick a couple of subjects which, you know, cross such a variety of topics. You know, universe, the brain, and Second Life. What, an, what a fascinating combination of, of, of terms. If I, was, if I was naming it, I'd almost, if I was thinking about the future, I'd say the universe, second life, and the brain. Maybe I'll try to explain that why. Uh, a bit of history about uh, myself, and, and by extension about second life. Um, how, how many people in here have really used second life for more than like a couple hours? So certainly not everybody, I mean, probably a quarter at most. Uh, you know, perhaps unlike some of the media excitement that's, that's accompanied Second Life and its, its growth, it's still a very early phenomena, and I'll talk about that a little bit. As to the background of it, though, virtual worlds, the general idea of virtual worlds, is one that has been on everyone's mind. It's been a piece of science fiction. It has been an idea related to entertainment or socializing or work or any number of different things. Uh, for years, there have been a lot of uh, companies and attempts at it, tried, many of them failed, and now it seems to be taking off. I, I thought it, it's illustrative to talk a little bit about my background, though, because it's so specific to what Second Life uh, is. As a kid, I uh, programmed computers and did electronics and just generally took things apart and tried to build things. You know, the, the door in my house, I, I insisted on cutting through the ceiling and making my door go up straight like Star Trek. You know, I put a garage door opener in my attic to achieve that, much to my parents' dismay. As a kid, as an inventive uh, technical kid, I was always building things and I was just really struck from a young age by how difficult it was to build stuff. That you could imagine things that you wanted to make, you know, but you had to use atoms, you had to use the universe as it exists today to make those things that you'd had these great ideas about. 
And that was something that really motivated me. As soon as I began programming, and, and more specifically, as soon as networks began to be widely available, I was struck by the idea that the best thing you could ever do with a computer would be to put a whole bunch of them together and somehow recreate the universe as we know it. Somehow, in a computer, simulate the laws of physics and basically create a world which looked sufficiently like the one that we've grown up in to allow us to be able to go into that world online and make things, to let us essentially express our ideas in, in a digital form rather than a physical form. So this idea of digitizing the world itself and then seeing what happens when you do that was what drove me as an entrepreneur and as a kid, in fact, to just dream about this idea. And then uh, in around about 1999, with the emergence of two key things, which were broadband networking and a very particular chip, which was the NVIDIA GeForce 2. It was the very first chip that could do really fast uh, 3D graphics on a, on a commercial PC. Those two things motivated me to jump ship and leave my job, which was at then, then at Real Networks, and start the company. For, for the entrepreneurs here, I had to start the company with my own money, and the idea of Second Life was really unfinanceable for years. It was extremely difficult to get going. And it's an interesting you know, piece of advice for those who are con contemplating genuinely new ideas. It's often hard, even, even having gone to business school or even having great connections to investors, to actually get these things off the ground and get them going. So we, we, we toiled away at basically this very idea of, of simulating the world uh, for years, actually. I started the company in 99, so it was a huge software project, a big undertaking, and it still is just a massive system that you, know, you maybe don't see all of when you log in or try to wander around in it. Um, in terms of sort of where things are today, because I was struck by this idea of uh, being able to make anything. I think it led me to architect the system and its business model uh, in a substantially different way. And, and that, that difference is, I think, what has made Second Life able to sustain itself and kind of take the first faltering steps toward genuine kind of global virtual reality. What was different was from the beginning we focused on the idea of people being able to create things inside it. In fact, ideally being able to create those things sort of right in front of each other. So you could literally click on the ground in Second Life and you know, make a, a, a shape, literally res, as we say, into existence, and then start painting it and manipulating it and, in fact, programming it. Your friend could be sitting and hammering on it and painting it while you were writing the code that animated the object that you were creating. That, that idea of co-creation and the general idea that people would be entrepreneurially free in a manner very similar to the web itself to just build anything they want, own the things that they built, and if they wanted to, to make money, is I think at the core of what led us to have the success that we've had. Again, this is still a category and an idea in its infancy. And so I think we're very lucky as a company to have been able to sustain ourselves in getting it going. The, uh, where it stands today is Second Life is about 30,000 CPUs tied together. Unfortunately, they're all in the United States. The majority of the uh, access now actually comes from the combination of the UK and Europe, so our servers are in the wrong place, uh, technically speaking. The, so these 30,000 machines simulate an area of about 500 square miles, all connected together. In most places, you can just walk and walk and walk and get from sort of one server to the next. 
So 500 square miles is big. I suppose it's like greater London now. I mean, it's substantially larger than London. And the density of objects on the ground in the world is actually about the same as you would see in a fairly busy city. So what I, what's important about that to note is that it is enormous, much like the web in its early days as compared to something like AOL that came before it. Its, its real difference lies in the fact that it is just absolutely enormous. The total amount of data that makes up all these buildings and houses and trees and cars and things that you find in Second Life represents about 250 terabytes of data. So by comparison, that's something like 10,000 times larger than uh, one of the big online uh, role-playing games, like something like World of Warcraft. This is an enormous size scale difference, and it creates a lot of emergent behavior that you wouldn't otherwise see. So where we are today, um, and as Ian mentioned, this. This huge space is coupled with an economy. For those who want to make money inside Second Life, there's a currency. The currency is bidirectionally convertible to dollars or to euros here. And you can, by doing that, make things in the digital world, say clothing or furniture or meeting spaces like this, and actually sell them for real money and then turn that money back into dollars and pay your own salary. There's about a million dollars a day in transactions that go on. Uh, and in addition, there are, by our count, about 60,000 people so far that appear to be making a profit in addition to the, you know, above and beyond the fees that they pay to us. I would estimate that there's probably a few thousand people today that if you asked them, they would tell you it was their full-time business. And by example, there is one uh, 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 fashion clothing designer in Second Life. She's actually here in Europe, who last year made about a million dollars US selling clothes uh, and, and accessories that don't exist. So, but they do. You know, the, so the virtual world, by the fact that it has this, this latent ability for you to create things, has become something that is very, very real to the people who are participating in it. It's still early, it's still hard to use, but it's definitely sort of on the exponential path, I think, to becoming something that's really, really important. So what is that something long term? Well, I honestly believe that if you go 10 years into the future, what you're going to see is that if you look at internet traffic, if you look at what people are doing with connected computers, you're going to see, amazingly, that the majority of what they do, much as the majority of what they do today is the web, the majority of what they do is something like Second Life, is either Second Life or its descendants, whatever they may be. The reason for this, I think, is twofold, or I would give I, many fold, but I would give two important reasons for this. One is that we as human beings are accustomed to, can remember, and can understand the world that surrounds us better than anything else. Better even than text, certainly better than hyperlinks and web pages. So if information is presented to us generally in a way that looks like this, we understand what to do with it. A simple example might be that you can wander around a city in the real world and discover it just using your feet. You know how to do it no matter which city you're in, where in the world it is. You can do the same thing with information in Second Life. You can fly around, better than this, you can fly around a city and you can see what's going on there even if it's a place that's in another language. And that is something very powerful that the web doesn't have. You can find your way without the need for language or the sort of semantic skills that you need to understand the web. The second thing, and I think this is the most important one, and it's perhaps the one that I, as sort of inventor, didn't really think about up front, is that when you are in the virtual world, you are always there with other people. Imagine being at a web page where you're trying to find some information and looking to your left and looking to your right or hitting some magic key combination you didn't know existed on the browser and being able to talk to or listen to and look at the other people who were on that same page with you. 
That is a basic need that we as humans have and something that we exploit whenever we find it, the ability to basically do something with other people. In fact, I think the technology of the virtual world is extraordinarily powerful in that unlike many of the ways we've used technology thus far, it actually has the promise of bringing us together. Where, where so much of technology, especially media technology, has progressively isolated us. We've gone from watching films together in a theater to watching them five on the couch in front of the television to watching them alone on our iPods. There was a New Yorker, if you saw this, that famously illustrated this. It was hilarious. But what's happening with virtual worlds, and I think humanity is going to push very hard to have this happen more and more, is that they're gradually bringing us back together. We're able to sit next to each other in Second Life and talk about something that we're consuming. And this is something that we cannot do with the web. The uh, final point, so I, so I honestly believe that we're at the beginning of very, we're at the very earliest stages of a phenomena that will change the way we use technology and will by extension, as have many technologies, change the way we live, who we are, how we experience each other. So the final question then is that I wanted to touch on before we get up and talk about it on panel is, is that good for us? If we spend 10 hours a day in front of a computer sitting there, is that a good thing? And this is a question that I'm often asked. And it's a question that I think people think about a lot because so many of the experiences that people have spent 10 hours a day online in front of are experiences that essentially present them with a world. These are the games that have come before Second Life present us with a world which is vastly simpler. A world, for example, in which to get ahead, you basically kill people. The, the 10 hours a day of training that teaches you that, that combat and death is, is the way to advance yourself in the world is obviously not going to be highly productive for, for humans. It's not educating us. Second Life, though, by comparison, if you go into Second Life and you try and make friends, get a job, learn something, you're confronted with an environment which is 60% non-US if you're in the United States. The average age is 32. There's an even number of men and women. The intellectual challenge of being successful there is, I, I would say, more difficult than many of the real world environments which if you stood up you would find yourself in. That is to say the digital future that we're moving so rapidly towards is one in which the challenges we face are online in front of that screen are greater than the intellectual challenges we face living our lives. We have more diversity, more people, more challenges, more contacts. And so I would, I would, I would suggest that in fact, if we use computers to place ourselves in this digital realm, and if it has the properties that are so generalized as what we want, we actually are likely to learn faster uh, and enhance our human experience by being there. So I wanted to say that as a, as a thought about, uh, in ending, what the future may bring. Thank you. We're delighted you're here in reality uh, as opposed to in a virtual form. Susan Greenfield has worked a great deal on the impact of uh, the generation that's focusing at four hours a day, I think, on average, uh, Philip mentioned, uh, focusing on his uh, second life, the impact on brain, on development, and on our uh, moods. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Susan Greenfield. Well, thank you very much, Ian. I feel very privileged to be here, but very apprehensive because I'm aware that as a neuroscientist, um, I'm in the minority. And uh, I may be saying things that perhaps you feel 
you don't believe in or that really um, are sort of of the last century and therefore I'm being somewhat techno-Luddite. Nothing could be further from the truth. What I'd like to do is explore with you a point that Philip made, which is what could be the impact of uh, advances in these technologies on the human mind. Is this what we're doomed to become? Some kind of techno-nerd grinning at world domination. Um, there's areas in which one can talk about brain research and information technology, and given the tightness of the time, I reckon I've got about four minutes on each topic, um, because Ian's a very draconian chairman. So the first is consciousness, which of course we can easily deal with in about three minutes flat. And um, I'll therefore cut to the chase and, uh, and, and, and go to the issue that many computer people like to talk about, which is modeling consciousness on computers. Um, let's think about what it means, though, to model something. If you're modeling something, um, then surely you're not just producing a simulacrum. What you're doing is finding the salient feature and promoting that at the expense of the extraneous features. So which of these two on the right is the better model of flight? Something that has feathers or something that defies gravity? The one doesn't necessarily uh, mean the other. And so it is with consciousness. What is the salient feature of consciousness that you'd want to model in silicon that means you can leave other bits out. If we knew that, we wouldn't have to do it anyway, because we'd know the answer. So I think modeling in a synthetic system isn't really a very helpful kind of approach or question. There are others, like a colleague of mine at Caltech, Christoph Koch, who believes that if you build something ever more complex, then consciousness will result just from mere complexity. Let's think about that for a moment. Here's Leonardo from MIT. Um, this was promoted by uh, that kind of philosophy, that sooner or later Leonardo or his, and I'm sure it's a his, um, successors uh, will sooner or later be you know, uh, having touchy-feely uh, inner states. Um, the problem is that we can't equate, or I don't think we can, even the simplest brains with complex computers. This is from um, a great adversary of mine, Ray Kurzweil, perhaps he's a great friend of yours, um, who nonetheless predicts that, as you can see, we're soon going to outstrip, be outstripped any day soon now by computers in terms of our, our thinking power. Um, the problem I have with that is this wonderful quote by Niels Bohr, the physicist, who cautioned a student once, you're not thinking, you're just being logical. And the whole aspect of human cognition is it's not logical. So you can't really reduce us to algorithms. Um, I would argue that consciousness is not computational. And uh, Roger Penrose from here has pointed out it'd be very hard to devise algorithms, for example, for intuition and common sense. Let's hope we still have bits of those left. Um, also, there's an importance of the body. Um, Antonio Damasio has talked about the importance of what he calls somatic markers, body markers, and feeding back on the brain uh, with chemicals called peptides that feed back from the gut, hence the notion gut feeling, and the fact that these chemicals iterate between the brain and the body to give you a cohesion that in ways we do not yet understand translates into states of consciousness. So we have the importance of the body, and indeed the thing I work on, the qualitative, the qualitative dimension of different chemicals and what they do within the brain. And we can elaborate that more in the Q&A. So what are the criteria for consciousness anyway? Um, well, I love this one by Stuart Sutherland. A cuter would be conscious when it ran off with his wife. Um, <laughs> and I'm waiting to meet some philandering computers. I haven't read any yet. Um, but nonetheless, it is very hard to actually think about what operational definition you're going to apply um, when computers do things anyway, and you're not doing anything, but I hope you're still conscious, apart from laughing at my bad jokes. Um, so what we need to do is to 
And this is a kind of uh, approach, is develop a computer, something that uh, passes the Turing test. And I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Turing test here. Um, and again, one can argue uh, the validity of the unit Bob here cramming for his Turing test. Um, no one has yet passed the Turing test. Although there is a human being that's failed it. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can all know people like that. Um, and I, as a biologist, would ask the following questions. Is consciousness an irreducible phenomena? And if so, what are we going to call computer consciousness? How different are we going to allow it to be from biological consciousness? Um, how might even, if you did have a computer that passed the Turing test, how might that actually solve what someone called David Chalmers has called the hard problem? How are we turning the water into wine? How are the sludgy traffic of all the chemicals in your brain translating into the subjective state, the wine of the subjective state? Indeed, the hard problem. And finally, what alternative approaches could solve the hard problem? And my own view is that if we knew what kind of answer might satisfy you, that's almost as hard as coming up with the answer anyway. Um, what kind of answers are we after? Now we romp on. Um, how long have I got? Ten minutes. I'll get forever. Seven minutes. Go. We romp on now to transhumanism, which uh, someone has described as the world's most dangerous idea, the notion that you can use artificial systems to enhance your physical and mental prowess, as presaged here several years ago by Newsweek. Uh, and I'd actually written a book called um, Tomorrow's People, available on Amazon still at 10.99, which was before <laughs> then. Uh, but it's all about that. Um, actually outlining, and Ian Pearson here um, has somewhat tongue-in-cheek shown how evolution has sped up for the million and a half years that uh, we as a species have stalked the, stalked the planet, going from Homo habilis um, to standing up. Neanderthals didn't get much of a look in in favor of us. Here we are today, but within, you see, 200 years, here we are. This is me, Homo sapiens luditus. Clearly not, not going to last much longer in favor of Homo machinus. Um, that is to say, some kind of cyber creature that has enhanced uh, strength, memory, and so on. It does beg the question why you'd want this what you'd do with an enhanced memory or better vision or, or so on. And again, we could discuss the merits and demerits of transhumanism. Um, but what we're really into here, and this is something I'd like to spend all the last five minutes that remains discussing, is the notion of identity, because this is something uh, that uh, Philip was mentioning. And I think it's something really that does concern us, because what is the most important thing as you're sitting? It's you, your identity is how you see yourself, it's what you are, it's what your life is about. This is another shameless plug for my latest book, um, ID, which just happens to be about identity, available in Blackwells and indeed on Amazon. So, um, for those of you who perhaps need to be tempted to go and buy it, uh, what are some of the thoughts that uh, can be distilled from that? Well, let's think about the effects of screen culture on identity. Indeed, we've just heard about the false identity from Second Life. Here we are, having a much nicer time than working in the lab. <laughs> and who, who wouldn't want to be um, doing that right now? Um, so <laughs> there's also um, what I fear more, what I call the, the no identity. Now, what does the no identity mean? No identity. Now, that's something I'd like to just pause for a moment on. Kids nowadays are spending, on average, six hours in the West, at least, or more, in front of the screen. Now, what I really need to impress, even though I'm desperately eating into time, is that the human mind, which for me is the personalization of the physical brain, is exquisite and unique. No one has a brain like yours. Even if you're a clone, an identical twin, no one, no one will have a brain like yours. And you won't have a brain like yours compared to a minute ago or even a minute from now. 
because your brain is constantly evolving. Everything that happens to you will somehow change subtly the connections between your brain cells. This is what we call plasticity. It doesn't mean the brain's made of plastic, of course. It means it is exquisitely sensitive. And we are more sensitive than any other species on the planet, which is why we occupy more ecological niches than any other species on the planet. We don't run particularly fast. We don't see particularly well. We're not strong. But heavens, we do learn well. And we adapt. Now, it follows, therefore, given this plasticity of the brain, that if the environment is changing, so too, inevitably, will the brain. Um, this is a wonderful book. I disagree with it, but it's very well written and very good, called Stephen Johnson. You may be familiar with it. Oh, sorry, called Everything's Bad, but it's good for you, where he promotes screen culture and points to the shift in IQ, the so-called Flynn effect that's occurred. He does point out also that there's been no shift in vocabulary, and the best of my knowledge, no shift in symphony writing, novel writing, or anything, or human relations, and so on, as a result. Um, what concerns me are some of the aspects of screen culture and relating them in some way, and this is just a question in all humility, with, for example, the threefold increase in Ritalin prescriptions for attention to deficit disorder over the last 10 years. Could it be linked to an environment, for example, like this one? With all apologies, I hope I'm not infringing. But if, if you're a little child who has had nothing else, given the malleability of the brain, I just wonder what that does to your synapses. Oh, sorry, here we go again, sorry. Let's just go. So, there's a wonderful quote by someone called Kevin Kelly who sums up the pros and cons of this Screen culture, a world of constant flux of endless sound bites of quick cuts and half-baked ideas. A flow of gossip tidbits of news headlines and floating first impressions. Notions don't stand alone, but are massively interlinked to everything else. Truth is not delivered by authors and authorities, but it is assembled by the audience. When you read a book, the author, the authority, and yes, it's linear, and yes, it's passive, and yes, it's of its time, but nonetheless, you've gone on a journey. Here you are, going on a journey. Intellectually, you're in a different place. Yeah? And things are interlinked. And then you go on another journey and another. And gradually, you relate one journey in terms of others. You build up a conceptual framework. But if you're very small and you've not had that conceptual framework, you don't see one thing in terms of something else. Might there be a difference? This little girl is doing something we all did, where the car, the box can be a car or a castle or a, a house. But if literally what you see is what you get, if we don't have the notion of metaphor or abstract concepts, then might we be infantilizing the mind of the young child to stay as they are? So perhaps a shorter attention span, um, strongly visual, literal versus abstract, no conceptual framework, you're in the moment, you're having fun in the moment. Process over content. If you're playing a game to rescue the princess, do you care about the princess? Do you care about the princess? You don't, do you? You don't care about her at all. You're rescuing, you don't care about it. If you read a book, you care about the princess. And that's the difference. It's process versus content. It's meaning. It's seeing one thing in terms of a, a wider context. And also, another thought, a very topical one, is I wonder whether it's making us more reckless. Because if you are doing things where there is never any hurt or pain or injury, and you don't realize, therefore, that things can go wrong, permanently wrong, not just playing the game again, but permanently wrong, then might you take risks in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Interestingly enough, recklessness is associated with damage here prefrontal cortex, which in turn is also associated with schizophrenia and obesity. What could these things have in common um, in terms of recklessness and taking more risks? Well, interestingly enough, with obesity, you're living in the moment, you're enjoying the food. Everyone knows the consequences of eating, don't we? Since we know the consequences of gambling, but certain people will have the thrill of the moment outweigh the consequences. And indeed, obese people, as shown here, take more risks. So why am I talking about this? Well, think about eating and think about being in an environment mandating a short attention span laden with strong sensations. Might there be an emphasis 
for an undue influence of the external environment in, dri in turn driving a situation where that bit of the brain is under-functioning, in turn leading to recklessness. And I'm aware that Ian's about to kill me off in a second, so this is just summarizing those thoughts. So in summary, for the first time in 100,000 years, is this a sunrise or a sunset? Could the individual identity be in crisis? The sunset scenario is we're living just for the moment, we're hedonistic, we have a short attention span, diminished sense of identity, we lack empathy, because, let's be brutal, reading Jane Austen is very different. Getting a feeling for how other people, different people are thinking and feeling, is different from the slightly autistic world um, that one sees sometimes in two dimensions. Sunrise would be a higher IQ, less risk averse, less prone to extreme ideologies, less potential for depression, because if you have less sense of identity, then you're going to be less sensitive to those things, I would suggest. Healthier, without question. And more important, you'll have more time and potential for self-development. Technology has freed us up to live longer and healthier lives more than any other generation. More decades stretch out after the kids have left home to do many, many things. More hours of the day stretch out, freed up from the drudgery that characterized the lives of my mum and my granny. To do what? To do what? What are you going to do with that time? Are you going to sit there playing games, which is very unusual for grown-ups to do, incidentally, playing games, you know, just for no... You know, it's not like charades or poker or rummy or bridge. You know, it's just playing or, or squash. You know, you're literally just playing a game with yourself. So, a bit strange. Um, so, is that what we're going to do? So, what does this mean with identity? Well, I think the effects of screen culture on identity have, present options that they didn't present to future generations. A false identity with the pros and cons that we can discuss. Oh, sorry. Um, no identity, which I call the yuck and wow mentality and the collective identity of Wikipedia, mass creativity, open source, which actually is not original. It was coined by someone called Chardin, who lived over 50 years ago, a Jesuit monk, actually, um, who had the notion of the noosphere, which has been adopted by the IT crowd, um, whereby um, we are all nodes on a, on a greater collective, thinking wonderful things, but as a collective, subsuming our identity under the source. I've got one minute left. <laughs> That's the last slide, Ian, so you can relax. Um, to actually say that I think... This romp through the interface of neuroscience and IT, I hope, is not as gloomy as you may have thought. Um, because I think the screen has huge potential to create environments, to understand processes, but we need to lead it. We have to decide collectively what do we want your kids to learn and your grandkids to learn. What do we want a society to be? What kind of environment will actually, for the first time, meet the unprecedented challenges of having time? Thank you very much. Great, Susan. I was going to say that if you didn't have time, people should look at your books, but um, you've saved me that. Uh, tremendous provocation to the virtual world uh, and all that focus. We'll get back to that on the panel, but without further ado, Elon. Um, well, I'm not exactly sure how to segue from uh, mind and virtual worlds to uh, what we're doing, but except uh, I guess uh, from the virtual world to the real world or something. Um, uh, the... Um, I'm actually a big fan of, of what Linden Labs is doing and the virtual world stuff. I think that's all really cool and actually quite supplemental to um, our lives. But um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about primarily SpaceX uh, in, in, in this the 15 minutes that I have. Um, leave Tesla for perhaps another occasion. Um, the, the, and I'll talk a bit about the motivations. Why, why did I start SpaceX? Um, when I was in college, I, I tried to think about what would most affect the future of humanity. And they seem to be that I could come up with sort of three things that would 
would really affect humanity in the most significant way. Those were the internet, uh, the transition to a sustainable energy economy, and space exploration, in particular the extension of life to multiple planets. Um, so I, I started a couple of internet companies, notably, most notably PayPal, um, and then uh, there was, uh, I, I, that gave me the capital to try to do some good in the other areas. Um, Tesla and SolarCity are um, an attempt to be helpful in the transition to a sustainable energy economy. And then SpaceX is an attempt to be helpful in the extension of life beyond Earth. Um, so it's been about six, a little over six years uh, since the start of SpaceX. And we, we finally made it to orbit a few months ago. It's actually very difficult to get to orbit. Um, <laughs> so, um, And in fact, we're the first, uh, privately developed, first privately developed liquid fuel rocket to reach orbit. Uh, there, there was a privately developed uh, solid fuel rocket to reach orbit, um, although they had some help in that the solid rocket motors that they used were uh, developed for the US military. So ours is actually the first um, completely privately developed rocket to reach orbit. Is, um, so, so Falcon 1 is really uh, kind of the uh, scale model, if you will, for, for what we're trying to do beyond that. Um, getting to orbit was obviously a critical first step. Um, but uh, in order to extend life beyond Earth, we have to have a much bigger rocket. Um, and it, it, it has to be something which is, um, you know, meets all the sort of safety standards that, that are necessary to carry people. And that's our Falcon 9 rocket. And that's going to launch for the first time next year. Um, and, and initially, it's going to carry cargo to the space station. Um, but we've designed it from the beginning to meet all of NASA's man rating requirements. So currently we have a contract to demonstrate the transfer of cargo to the space station and return to Earth. And I'm um, optimistic that NASA will also ask us to demonstrate the transfer of astronauts to the space station and back. In fact, if it's either going to be us or nothing. Um, so the space shuttle retires in 2010 and NASA has something called the Ares Ryan Project which is due to uh, sea flight um, in 2015 or thereabouts. Um, and then it's either, there's either going to be a gap where, where there's no uh, US access to space, or it'll be us. And I think that the US government will not be OK if, it's, if, if there's no access to space. <clears throat> but anyway, Falcon 9 is kind of the taking things to, to, to the next level. And um, the, the really big breakthrough that has to occur, I think, in order to uh, extend life beyond Earth, uh, and sort of make Mars a sustaining uh, ecology and back up the biosphere is, is a reusable orbital launch vehicle. Um, this is something that, that's never been achieved before. Um, there have been numerous attempts in that direction. And the space shuttle is a partially reusable launch vehicle, but the main tank is thrown away every time. Um, and the bits that are reusable are so expensive that it's more, it costs more than, than, a, than a reusable launch vehicle. The, sh the shuttle is about a billion dollars flight. Um, whereas an, uh, an expandable rocket of equivalent uh, payload capability is about $250 million. So um, that's sort of a counterexample against reusability. But if we can't make reusability work, I think humanity will, will, will forever be stuck on Earth. Um, because you can imagine if, um, if, if ships had not been reusable, that the United States would, would not have, well, the, the new world would not have been colonized. The United States would not exist certainly in its current form. Um, and uh, so, so really, we have to make reusability work. 
and that's the aspiration of, of Falcon 9. Um, <clears throat> so I'll, th this is actually just a computer-generated uh, image of Falcon 9 in the crew configuration. Really, the key is, is being able to, to make the whole thing reusable. Um, that, that's going to be what, what uh, allows or doesn't allow for uh, life becoming multiplanetary. And uh, just on the, um, you know, why is it important that life become multiplanetary? Well, you have to say, how do you decide that anything is important? Um, I think the lens of history is a good way to decide whether things are important or not. And um, if you look at, if you zoom out far enough and look at the evolution of life itself and say, what stands out on that scale? Um, there's obviously the advent of single-celled life, multicellular life, differentiation to plants and animals, um, <clears throat> life going from the oceans to land, uh, mammals, consciousness. There's about half a dozen really big ones. But I think also on that, uh, on that scale would fit the extension of life to multiple planets. Um, I think probably above uh, life going from the oceans to land, because at least oceans to land could be a gradual process. If you got uncomfortable on land, you could hop back in the water. Um, but going across you know, billions of miles of space is, is a much, diff much more difficult problem um, and requires actually consciousness as a precursor, I think. So if, if something's important enough to fit on the, the scale of evolution of life itself, it has to, ha it has to be, you know, it, it's important. Um, <laughs> you know? and, and it goes beyond, I think, a lot of the parochial concerns of humanity, things that we think are really important, but are really only important in sort of a narrow human context. But what, because what we're really talking about here is the extension of life to, to multiple planets. All right, thank you. So that was uh, absolutely tremendous. Uh, and there was a clear segue with uh, Second Life because a lot of that was virtual right in the end. We're not quite there yet. Um, we will constrain this to about 10 minutes uh, because we're slightly behind time and then maybe run over for five minutes to give you good time to intervene. Let me uh, perhaps begin with, uh, with Elon. Um, I guess you're not telling Congress that they should support this because you want to colonize uh, Mars, right? That politicians tend to have life cycles which are maybe a couple of years. Um, so this is a commercial thing. Um, and I, I, does it conflict with your Tesla, Tesla Motors, which presumably is trying to make sure this doesn't happen? Armageddon, you're creating electric cars, you're trying to make, you're creating solar, uh, you're doing lots of things which try and stop the need to disappear onto another planet. How do these things work out in your mind? Well, first of all, I'm actually very optimistic with future of Earth. So sometimes people think that, well, I, I, I want to go colonize Mars because Earth's doomed. Um, I don't think Earth is doomed. I think there's a very tiny chance that Earth is doomed, at least in the time frame uh, that, that is relevant to us. Um, so it's, a non, it, you know, it's some small chance of, of a really bad thing happening. But I think, you know, people buy insurance not because, well, you buy car insurance not because you expect to get run over by a semi-truck tomorrow, but because you might. Um, and you know, that it's considered a sort of a form of, perhaps it's, it's wise to do this. Um, so you know, Tesla and Solar City are an attempt to help make life a little better on Earth um, and uh, you know, participate in that solution. And, and, and SpaceX is about extending the scope and scale of, of life as we know it. Um, I mean, the thing that just gets me excited is, is not so much the defensive reasons of protecting the future of life, because I think that's important, certainly, but um, it's really just, it's a much more exciting future if we're out there exploring the, the universe than if we're forever stuck on Earth. Okay, more exciting than exploring uh, virtual reality. Philip, uh, Susan accused people at Focus uh, a lot of times 
on uh, computer games four hours, six hours a day as perhaps uh, severely impairing their intelligence, becoming more reckless, becoming more violent, and uh, many other things uh, as well. Do you agree with her? Well, I think it, as both Susan and I said, I mean, I mean, the way I would interpret it is that there is a, a great sensitivity to what it is you're doing. And, and in fact, Susan's video was, was a World of Warcraft. It was, or it was a montage <laughs> of the uh, shooter and fighting games, which are, in the worst case, are solo, as you were saying. They're, they're games in which you are sitting alone without even contact with other human consciousness. But in the cases where you're in contact with other people, if those cases are simplified to become a, a, a game like sort of an opiate, where you essentially distill human interaction down to a punch, uh, you're unlikely to advance us as a species. I think, though, that uh, the, the, the question, and, and, and I think Susan did leave this as an opening as to what can happen next, is if we use, if we use this technology in the right way, if we search for ways to create uh, perhaps richer forms of identity, for example, uh, using machines, uh, or using machines to connect us, not to transhumanize us, uh, that there is possibility for great advancement. I, I would also say, uh, Susan mentioned the, the idea of a conceptual framework, that, that we, we search for mm -hmm. abstraction, and that we, in, in the world that we know, the world of, of, of our history, we have this ability to conceptualize and abstract it, and I think that is very true. In fact, I think that we're in, however, what, what I would say in disagreement is that we are in a time of change where we as a human race are confronted with a new set of symbols, a child playing at blocks in a virtual world is, is, is probably confronted with a world which does not have the same conceptual abstractions that we as adults have faced and that even they, perhaps as children, have sometimes seen. But what I would say is that instead we simply must shoulder on and sort of figure out the new conceptual abstractions and the new semantics associated with the kind of world that we uh, create together inside machines. And I think that there is a genuine uh, opportunity for us all because of the good things that can come of making that work. We are unable, as a species, we have to connect with each other to, to keep from fighting. There's just no question in, in the anecdotes of history that, that the more contact we have with each other as a, as a species across continents, across national boundaries, it allows us to come together uh, and, and to protect each other. And this is one way, virtual worlds are certainly one way that we do that. Susan, escape to other planets, escape to virtual <laughs> worlds. Uh, is this the way that we're going to uh, move forward? <laughs> okay. Um, is it the way we want to move forward, I think, is probably your question. Yeah. Um, in terms of picking up from what Philip said about connecting, um, there are those... Can I just ask Philip, how many friends have you got on the social networking... <laughs> on, on the social networking sites, how many friends do you have? You mean like on Facebook? Yeah, like on Facebook, yeah, yeah, or any of them. Any. Well, I'd say the same friends that I really have are the are the, are the ten or so that are on there. But uh, I, but, but in my, my case, yeah, in my case, there's you know hundreds of new people yeah, that yeah. I've met mostly through work there. Okay, so so that's exactly the point I was going to make that we have to redefine what we mean by connecting. Do we mean by I might met someone who had 900 friends? Yeah? Now you know my friends take up a lot of my time. I have to lend them money, borrow money off them, go for walks with them, listen to why they've been dumped, you know, set up on, <laughs> all that sort of thing. Um, so you know, know their, hear their fantasies and their hopes and their fears, and hear all the boring things, like the dreams they've had, and uh, yeah. So you have to do all that with friends. And what I worry about is that we are coarsening the concept of connection, just as text messaging, say, coarsens the notion of letter writing. Yeah? Now, it's not to say it's not good, and of course you do it, and it's the sort of thing that 
the, the real world requires nowadays, um, the modern world. But on the other hand, let's not, let's not confuse it or equate it with the older skills that we may be losing. Now, what we have to decide is whether we want those skills or not, whether they're valuable anymore, whether they're going to be useful to society. And I'm you know, guilty as charged. I'm, I'm obviously biased, but well, let's, let's you know, question these things. I'm not saying automatically that everyone should read Jane Austen. But if they do, I think they'll get insights and empathy that would, with all respect, not necessarily come from being an avatar. Just I say that. You know, but it may, it may be wrong. But anyway, I think we need the portfolio a portfolio of technologies, but we have to harness those technologies to reach the ends that perhaps we reached or we wanted to reach in the 20th century, but failed or couldn't do very well. Um, I think it's a very exciting time, but we shouldn't take as an article of faith that technology, just because it's technology, is good. Um, nor that it's very bad, but I think we have to decide first. We have to put the cart before the horse and, and actually destroy the horse before the cart and decide on, on what we, where we want to go. And, and I think when you say, do we want to go to other worlds, do we want to connect, what do we mean by that? Why is it good? Uh, I think we need much more reflection and consideration and thought. If the panellists don't have burning questions for each other, I don't know if, if you want to come, we'll oh, open yeah, it. No, yeah? Yeah. Okay, we might come back to them. The gentleman over there. Um, I think you need to wait for a mic because it's being recorded. I just wanted to, I just wanted to uh, follow up on the last point you made. Um, so we've, we've lived in a culture, especially in the West, um, but... I guess in every single culture, where um, reading is a more recent phenomenon, at least a more recent widespread phenomenon. So is there any kind of um, research or uh, work that's been done to see what kind of difference widespread reading has made versus the kind of more traditional storytelling uh, approach that we've had in our societies and cultures? Because the, the empathy point for me is, is especially important, this idea that that is a fundamental attribute uh, at the basis of our engagement with anyone else. And so I wonder, to the extent where empathy can be found, or developed rather, uh, through more traditional storytelling uh, means now conveyed through uh, more sophisticated technology, is that something where we might actually find new ways of uh, creating empathy? Um, okay, so... For a start, it would be hard to do experiments like that to actually manipulate populations of people in that way. You can, in retrospect, um, look at the effects of reading and the book. But my own thinking is that it's not so much the physical act of reading. I think storytelling, you're right, perhaps brought out the same qualities and the same talents, the same long attention span, the same imagination. If you sit around the tribal campfire listening to stories, um, using your imagination, that's what kids do on their parents' knees. You don't necessarily have to physically read the book for yourself. So... The qualities that I'm referring to are ones where you can you know, you listen to the radio even, and then you feel let down when you see, I felt this when I met a, TV, a radio presenter, I felt let down when I met him, because he wasn't how I imagined he should look. Um, and it's like, <laughs> I actually told him that. Actually. Um, and it's a bit like, um, people always say the book is better than the film. Always. Yeah. And that is because your imagination is usually powerful. Now, whether that is tapped into by these rather strange words on pages or someone speaking those words, I, I think is, is not as relevant as encouraging the long attention span and letting your imagination go to work. The gentleman over there. Yeah, I'll just, this is working, yeah? I just wanted to raise the point that current and possibly future technologies might make, say, um, the exploits of um, the the works of Jane Austen come to life in a greater way than a book ever could. And that um, with new technology, it could 
be possible to create even greater empathy because you could see what's happening in a story, say, and possibly even interact with the characters when they behave in a similar way. So, um, yeah, that's just a point, really. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that you know, Second Life as a study certainly has many examples of new types of art that people are exploring, and many of those are, as you say, unachievable uh, through previous methods. But I also think the concept of attention span in society is, is driven not implicitly by the very act of having a screen and a keyboard in front of you, but again by the, the nature of what you're doing. Short video, for example, is a specific type of format. Second Life doesn't necessarily mandate a uh, short attention span. In fact, because it's immersive and involves other people, it generally has a higher kind of a dwell. Uh, people that look at things uh, on videos in comparison to Second Life, as, as Ian touched on, the average person in Second Life that's online in, in a given day spends about four hours uh, online, generally doing something that's fairly directed, like like setting up their home or uh, making some money, you know, you know, selling clothes in a virtual store. They're the things that are m much more actually lifelike and typical in, in the experience. You want to come back on this? Yeah, yeah, no, that's all very, that's that's all great. But for me, I think what may be at risk and what is most exciting <coughs> is putting disparate facts together to develop ideas. You know, if someone said you come to my house for dinner, you sit next to Bill and he'll tell you facts all evening, or you sit next to Ben, he'll tell you ideas, we'd all like, I imagine, to sit next to, um, to Ben. Um, so I think it's really important that we think of ways, and I don't see how this would necessarily follow from, let's say, being in Second Life, um, in a way that you can put together new elements to develop an exciting concept or idea. Um, and that, for me, is the apotheosis of the human brain. Maybe... Um You'll Everyone be invited into Second Life to have those I'm conversations sure. and develop them. Exactly. All right, the lady over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just interested. Um, obviously, things like Second Life and so on—you have to sit in front of a screen for several hours on end. What about physical health? Because it's well known that physical health and activity affects the mind, and yet if you're yeah. just sat there for hours on end. You're going well, to get fat and, and <laughs> you know, blood pressure will change and all sorts of physical things will, will change. Well, a practical fact to be considered is in most cases, and this isn't just true for Second Life, um, what's being competed with is people's time in front of the television. And so uh, it's difficult. I, th I think it's extraordinarily difficult, difficult to argue that Second Life is a poorer choice than watching television. Yeah, but then a lot of people sit in front of the television for too long as well. So it's still physical health that's sure, being affected. Sure, sure. All right. Yes, yeah, so I'd say the, the screen, if you want to talk about the screen, generally. A lot yeah. of hands going up. Um, <laughs> right, why don't we just take the microphone back. Uh, gentleman over here, there, there, and we'll move back. Be very quick in your comments, and we hopefully we'll get everyone in. <laughs> yeah, just, there's a lot of geeks in the audience, and so, and each of you has just access to such amazing knowledge. And this is a question, starting with Elon, and you guys can, I've seen you speak before, and you've talked about the actual math that describes how hard it is to get into orbit. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a mind-blowing statistic. I wonder if you could share that with us. Maybe something cool about Tesla, and maybe each of you guys has some kind of mind-blowing stat that maybe, <laughs> you know, might make us sound a little wiser at dinner or something like that. Sure. Well, um, yeah, most people don't understand the difference between getting to space and getting to orbit, um, and it's way more difficult to get to orbit, because um, sometimes you get asked, you know, is, is what is Virgin Galactic a competitor with SpaceX? And it's not at all, because uh, getting to space, if you define space as being, say, 100 kilometers in altitude, 
um, is, is, is actually relatively easy. You only need to get to Mach 3 uh, to get to space. Um, to get to orbit, you need a minimum of Mach 25. Um, and, uh, or you're coming back real soon. <laughs> uh, um, and that, the, the, the energy required to get to a particular velocity scales with the square of the velocity. So it takes, say, nine units of energy to get to space, but 625 units of energy to get to, to orbit. Um, so getting to space is only 1.5% of what's needed to get to orbit. I think that's probably what you're, you're asking. Um, and then regarding Tesla, um, it's cool. Um, <laughs> so it's a hard sports car. It's faster than a, it's, it's got better acceleration than any Ferrari except the Enzo, and has twice the energy efficiency of the best hybrid. Um, so an effective um, a miles per gallon equivalent of about 130. Um, or another way to look at it is there's the energy equivalent of two gallons of gasoline in the Tesla battery pack, and it goes uh, almost 200, you know, roughly 250 miles. Can we buy it here? Uh, yeah, it's, we just uh, finished our 100th car, um, and uh, right now we're rolling about, uh, about 15 cars per week off the production line. Um, I'll so. come to Oxford one day. Um, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm, I'm not going to ask them to answer, Chris, because there's so many hands up, the others. Uh, let's get the mic uh, moving back quickly. The, so the gentleman at the end there. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's good news. Um, can you comment on the differences in the mind sh change you had to make going from software, uh, highly scalable model to, a tr to two transportation companies uh, with very different uh, qualities of scalability, et cetera, et cetera? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, as was mentioned earlier, the, uh, it's difficult to make things out of atoms. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, uh, yeah, it's, it was definitely a huge learning curve going from uh, two internet companies where it's really just software, some servers, uh, to, to making physical hardware. Um, now, I, I did actually do a physics degree, and, and my father was an electrical and mechanical engineer, so I was, had some familiarity with, with making physical things. But um, it's, it's, I think the biggest single issue is, is uh, one of a supply chain and, and uh, or, or in the case of the rocket, you know, everything has to work, and you can't patch stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, if it crashes, it has very significant negative consequences. Um, you know, whereas software, if software crashes, you can just restart it, or you can disable a feature, or you know, it's it's just it's 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 way way easier, and the cycle times are much shorter for software. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, just move very quickly, otherwise a lot of people aren't going to get to speak. Um, the gentleman here and then the lady uh, behind. Is it working? Yeah, okay. Uh, I have a, a comment you, you made. Uh, you said something about how people can explore our worlds, uh, and instead of then going for information hunting through text, they can do it visually. But I think that that's sort of a, a misconception of the mental model of information. And so trying to model the real world uh, where 99% or probably more, you probably know the right uh, number, is insignificant to the meaning making of, of people living there. I don't need to explore, I don't need uh, every window in every town when I explore it because that's not, it doesn't really, it's not significant to me. So 
what I would like to hear is, do you see any kind of, I wouldn't say market, but just any kind of use for, for instead of, of modeling the real world, modeling mental worlds or inner worlds, and would that sort of meet your uh, concerns about what, what, how that affects the plas plasticity of the brain, brain or the brain as a plasticity? Sure. You know, I think the challenge there, I mean, absolutely, what's so remarkable about the brain is that we've built, there are structures therein that represent uh, our conceptualization of a massive amount of sensory input. I think the problem, though, is that you can't show us those structures across the same sensory barrier in ways other than by symbols that we've already seen. So that's why the movies, when we sort of have magical movies where we, like, look you know, and we've got these amazing data structures and stuff. I, I think they're they're kind of going to remain in science fiction because you can't see that information and then internalize it. Okay, it depends what you mean by model. Yeah, when you say models, I've said a real model is something that extracts features that are salient at the expense of the extraneous ones. Yeah. I, I guess I guess what I mean is uh, what, what really matters. What what made a significant uh, input to. What, how I perceived yeah. a certain situation. Yeah, and this is where I disagree with Ray Kurzweil, for example, who thinks that you can download, he's going the opposite direction, but it's the same notion, you can download a memory, for example, and then download her person and achieve kind of silicon immortality that way, you know, so it's hope. Um, the problem is that a memory, a memory of an episode in human beings has a time and space constraint. It's not like the memory for, for the word table in French, for example, which is a fact. A memory is not a fact. A memory is couch in a whole hierarchy of values, other memories, associations. Indeed, that memory has changed every time you access it, according to the age that you revisit it by. So you'd have to download the whole brain to download a memory. You know, they're not atomized and modular. And that's a mistake that I think IT people often make with the brain. Indeed, some neuroscientists do, to think you can reduce it to a gene for this or that, you know, a chemical for pleasure or for whatever, a brain region that does this or that. And the brain doesn't work like that. Yes, of course, it's um, varied, like you know, different ingredients in food or different instruments in an orchestra, each contributing something. But they work cohesively, and the brain works cohesively. You can't chop up easy bits and download easy bits. Moreover, the brain works in a body, yeah, which is very dependent on feedback from the autonomic cells, the endocrine system, the immune system, and so on. So I struggle with the notion of a model of these things because, at the moment, I don't know what bits to leave out because I won't want to leave any bit out. And I think that would just make it even more interesting see, to see what they would look like. <laughs> okay. Um, the gentleman on your right and then the lady behind you. Yeah. Um, if there's anyone on the right-hand side, do let me know, because the, the mic's tending to gravitate towards the center. Yeah. As regards the, the dichotomy between abstract and literal, uh, I was wondering, is it perhaps not really an either-or, but you could have both? I mean, the fact that we're in a room and you have the texture, which is the concrete. You know, it's a fairly nice room, the detail and all that. But the really important stuff is the structure of thought, the, the ordering of our dialogue, and um, yeah. the, the fact that we have our surroundings doesn't rule out um, yeah. or maybe even enhances the, the actual yeah. Yeah. exchange of ideas. Yes, very briefly, you're describing the passage that the human mind takes when it develops, going from a sensory world to a cognitive one, because mm. you're born, in the words of William James, into the booming, buzzing confusion, mm. where you can only evaluate the world in terms of sensory terms, how sweet, how fast, how bright. Gradually, those senses will coalesce and textures, colors, sounds, and smells will be your mum's face. Yeah. And your mum's face will feature again and again and again in your life. And that will forge more and more connections, which means she will mean something to you. She doesn't mean to other people, although in sensory terms they can perceive a lady. So you shift as you mature from sensory to cognitive. Yeah? Um, so, yes, all of us, everything we do 
is highly cognitive, but what I fear is that we might regress into more of a sensory world where things don't mean so much and they're more of a premium on strong sensations than on, than on cognition. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I have a bit of a cascading question that touches on aspects of all three of yours. And the premise of the first one is, why should we model the real world instead of actually living the real world? And you mentioned opiate sensory perceptions. And obviously, I mean, what is the point of an opiate <laughs> experience if you can't have your sensory perceptions? You can't deny the impact of physicality or the importance of touch, smell, interaction observation, recreation, simulation of the subliminal or the unconscious. And, um, <laughs> and also how you're speaking of you know, taking the place of television, which undeniably this is better, but instead of encouraging other forms of diversion that incorporate all of these, as I said, physical aspects of human interaction instead of a model version of human interaction that incorporates healthy living and things of the sort. And then going on to the implications of expanding to alternative planets on taking, um, as the Baroness was mentioning, a ramificationless world of technology and its impact on empathy and things of that sort. That obviously there's technological ramifications of responsibility once you start, as you were saying, the implications of something going wrong. But what about the social ramifications of having an alternative so we take less responsibility for where, what we have here? Great. Emil, why don't you go? Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry. sorry. I, was just, I was just thinking that may, maybe we are the second life of some higher being. The <laughs> 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 stolen illusion. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think you know, we, we're going to work on solutions to the problems of Earth because even if we do establish life on another planet, it's only going to be a small number of people that can leave and go there. Um, most of us will be stuck here. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't think it reduces our impetus really to, um, you know, to fix things on Earth. And like I said, I'm actually quite optimistic about where things are headed. I mean, I'm, I think I've got a very good understanding of the technologies, you know, the renewable energy technologies that are um, in development and getting deployed. And I've, I'm quite confident that we, we will solve, uh, you know, the global warming issue and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I really am quite optimistic about it. So um, you had sort of many questions there. I'm yeah. not sure if I... That's great. We'll come back to some of these in a few minutes. Susan? Yeah. Um, it's often fascinating me about the human condition, um, that we seem to oscillate between the two. This is a respect whether you're geeky, non-geeky, or whatever. Um, wine, women, and song, drugs, and sex, and rock and roll have been part of the human condition ever since we were the dawn of, of our evolution. Yeah? And now all those things have something in common, which is an abrogation of the sense of self. Yeah, whether you like downhill skiing or dancing or sex or food, these are not mutually exclusive things to like. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, they do have in common. They do have in common that you are letting yourself go. You are blowing your mind. Yeah? The very word ecstasy in Greek means to stand outside of yourself. Yeah? Um, and so we seem to like or want to put ourselves in scenarios sometimes, and sometimes people take drugs, which will mess up the connections of their brain cells, so that you are no longer self-conscious, so you are back in the infantile world of the booming, buzzing confusion, highly hedonistic, highly strong sensations, 
was stripped of all cognitive content. Techno, techno, techno. Yeah, stripped of all cognitive, <laughs> stripped of all cognitive content. You know, raised people, I'm told, are in you know flashing lights and bright senses. Yeah, dominating. Now, what I find interesting is we like that on the one hand. On the other hand, we want to. Why are you all here this evening rather than just you know dancing or something? You know, why is everyone here? Is because also we crave fulfilment a meaning to things, a meaning to ourselves, a meaning to our life, a sense of fulfillment, our own little individual trajectory. Yeah, it's very, very precious to us. And yet if someone just does that and never lets himself go, you feel sorry for them. If someone says they just want to spend all their time in the bar, you feel sorry for them, I think. So, yeah. so you have these two extremes, and this was since the time Euripides pointed out, since the Bacchae, people know that play. Yeah. So what is fascinates me is that finally there may be a shift in the, the world of the screen, and I speak very generally of that, could be a world, it not but it's looking to me like a world, which is the booming, buzzing confusion, the strong sensations, the fun, the hedonism, the here and now, very potent. And I'm worried about that shift. But I would ask back, not as, as a rhetorical question, what is it you want out of life? Do you want to let yourself go? Or do you want to do what? What do you want to do with yourself? Yeah? What do you want to go? Sorry, just a small <laughs> mm. Follow on with two statements. To the question of sort of why rebuild the real world. Well, listen, practically speaking, uh, very few people in this world, this real world, will ever be able to visit Oxford or Beijing or pretty much anywhere else. Moving the human body around is so uh, carbon costly uh, that it, we are n simply not going to do it. Uh, but, but being able to sort of uh, touch, reach out and touch and communicate with people uh, in a virtual world is extremely powerful and extremely cheap. Second thing though I wanted to say about identity, which goes back to this question of are we losing identity in virtual worlds? The, uh, the idea that identity is false um, is an idea which simply doesn't stand up to the anecdotal experience of being in Second Life. I, I could ask people who'd been in it here to like, speak to that, but it, th what actually tends to happen in, in the virtual world is that a, a, a great sense of projected identity is actually, actually tends to be drawn out of you by the very plasticity that like the brain the virtual world offers. And I don't believe that the identity there is false. This is, I think, something that's subtle and people will look at and debate, and it's admittedly a complex issue, but personally what I see in Second Life from my own experiences there and those of others is that people actually tend to construct, it might be bad in some way, I don't know, but they construct a, from a complexity standpoint, a richer sense of identity in there. There's a, there's a sort of a filigree and a detail to what you're able to, to uh, push out of yourself that I think is, uh, uh, at least in many ways, interesting and, and progressive. Yeah, there, there recently was a divorce uh, in England based on what people were doing in virtual reality. So yeah, although that <laughs> stuff's been um, happening. There's, there are also many, many, many marriages. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean real ones. I mean ones in which the couple does move in together in the real world. Well, Fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, the gentleman over there. You guys have all mentioned uh, the importance of cooperation, and yeah, I think that's really important. And uh, when my I, my tutor showed me the slideshow about SpaceX as he worked on it, and he actually mentioned to me saying, "Our oh, SpaceX are really going, you know, taking on NASA." And I was like, "Wow, taking on NASA!" Uh, it reminds me of, at the moment, I, I thought, well, China rolled out its, its uh, EVA earlier this year, and they were saying, "Well, we're going to take on uh, NASA, we're taking on US," and then the conclusion was that actually they did their EVA 50 years ago. Is that realistic? Now. So that, that led on to the conversation that actually should we be working together? Now, th they're very secretive. It, it, you know, what, what do you think is the way that we can all share this cooperation, work together, 
to solve this issue. Yeah. Well, um, well, actually, um, NASA is our biggest customer, so we're not really competitive with NASA um, in, in a direct sense. Um, we're um, we're they you know, we're really um, they're a customer. Um, so um, I think sometimes people sort of think that NASA, you know, it, kind of NASA owns all space or something like that. But actually, um, the, the the rocket launches that NASA does are are really performed by government contractors, um, Boeing or Lockheed in particular. Um, so in effect, we're competing with Boeing or Lockheed, but we're not competing with with NASA. Um, as on the international front, we are somewhat prevented from um, working too closely with, with countries outside the U.S. because of the, the rocket technology being considered a uh, weapons technology. It's, a, it's the same. I mean, what, what, our, our rocket could just as easily have delivered a warhead somewhere um, as put something into orbit. Um, and we could, if we wanted to, hit any place on Earth in no, no more than 45 minutes. Um, okay, be, yeah. <laughs> we, we love you from Oxford. Um, <laughs> so watch I, out. <laughs> it's 7.30. It's, it's I think this is um, such a stimulating conversation, and Susan's warned us off the perils of, of just having hubbub outside that um, we should carry this on for another five, ten minutes, if that's okay with uh, the organizers. Is that okay? Yep. Um, let's quickly move the microphone back. The gentleman over there, gentleman over there, gentleman with the white shirt, and then... Last, uh, yeah, for, okay. Um, I think it's coming my way by the look of the mic. <laughs> I've got a microphone working here. I'll wave my arm, then you can look in that direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. um, Susan was asking the question, what do we all want out of life? And I can't help thinking a huge number of us in this room really, really, really want to go into space. Um, <laughs> and, and despite um, Ellen's best efforts, I guess that's not going to happen um, before, before I'm dead. Uh, unless Susan pulls off something really staggering over the way that we keep well, brains alive. Depends so on how I'm, long you live, really. I yeah. So I'm really, <laughs> I'm really hoping Philip can, can do it for oh, me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so the question I want to tie in, which, which seems to tie in with what quite a lot of people have talked about, is this business of actually connecting the real world with the virtual world. And I just want to know what, what Second Life are doing, what Lyndon are doing to connect all the staggering technologies over accelerometers, over improved screen technology, et cetera, so that we can really live in Second Life, we can experience things in Second Life using those sort of technologies rather than, as Susan keeps criticizing, just sitting in front of a computer screen. Yeah, I, I do think that that'll happen. I, I, I think practically, from an engineering perspective, the, the undebatable or you know, more mundane elements of this is simply that it's going to take you know, another few years, the, the immersive qualities of the experience that puts kind of all this data in front of you, including other people, uh, is challenging from a computing perspective. And so, you know, mobile devices being able to put you in there, even with the accelerometers, of course, GPS, all the wonderful stuff that's being done, really, you know, letting you look through the looking glass of a tiny device, I think will be transformative for people. Um, and it will be, uh, in many ways, a solution to the, the risk of isolation. But the, the problem is, it, it is still technically a bit farther out, I would say, as, as someone who has to grapple with, you know, making the various graphics cards work. So we're not, like, super focused on getting Second Life working on mobile. We have, we have open sourced our clients, so there are other people that are working on it. But I think it's, 
you know, not a tremendous amount of time out, but perhaps, you know, five years before that gets really interesting. Great. Okay. Who's next? The gentleman uh, with the microphone. Uh, uh, maybe we've uh, touched upon this a little bit in the discussion that went on so far. This goes back to one of the slides, I think, in Susan's uh, presentation, which had three children looking at a laptop. Uh, so I was just wondering, maybe the day is not far off where a three-year-old will have to log in so his uh, avatar can build uh, bricks or uh, play with building blocks. Uh, <laughs> what does this mean for the human race? What does it mean for our next generation? Uh, is that evolution at all? Uh, or are we losing skills that uh, we will need in real human life? Yeah, I gather, and I'm sure people in the audience will know more than I do, there is now a social networking site for five-year-olds or for, for primary school children, which um, I can only think is worrying if it's unsupervised. Yeah? Um, yeah, the issue is when you're very young and you go on the screen or if you start to navigate, what questions are you going to ask? If you don't have any reference, you will be putting a premium on the qualities of the sensations that you're having as opposed to significance. So whilst we sophisticates can go onto Google or Wikipedia or whatever and navigate it and know what's meaningful and what's relevant and what's not. If you don't have a basis of cross-referenced information and knowledge behind you, how you get, you're going to be in this answer-rich but question-poor environment where you, you don't go anywhere. You, know, you just say yuck and wow and sit back. And that's what concerns me. It's not that people will use computer screens and so on. That's great. But it's how do we provide people with the infrastructure, with a framework where they can allocate meaning and relevance to what they're actually looking at, I to provide them with basis of cross-referencing rather than just the thing in and of its own. I and mean, what really upset me was the BBC recently um, had an advert for revision, and it said, is your revision ho-hum or something? Um, now you can get information in soundbite chunks, you know? And I thought that's exactly what you don't want. You want to put facts into a context. You don't want eyes, you know, who cares the height of a certain mountain or the battle of it, you know, who cares about it? It's more how you relate one thing to another. And the most exciting intellectual journeys are made when you cross boundaries. For example, Uncle Burnett, who imported the principles of evolution into the immune system and showed the same. That's an astonishing and exciting thing. You wouldn't get that just by going on Wikipedia. Well, you might find out who Burnett was, but you wouldn't be able to make that kind of intellectual comparison and, and, and leap. Yeah? So what concerns me is that we are atomizing, if you like, information and we're not turning it into knowledge and especially for young people if we don't think of other ways if they just have unsupervised access to wandering around like that then they'll just end up saying yuck and wow that's what worries me you know certainly safety and supervision is is essential in this world and in any other but that example of playing with blocks is just exactly what is unavoidable and so so amazing about like what we're doing with second life let me tell you, as a kid who played with blocks and then Legos and anything else I could get my hands on, literally, we used to talk about Lego. We used to use the word Lego a lot when we were developing Second Life. The experience of going into Second Life as a kid and building something that you can actually make, take on life with a, with a minute's worth of work, you can make an object that you know, spins around when you get close to it or glues itself onto another object in the manner of a Lego. That experience is unbelievably powerful. And yes, it's, it, 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 it engages the question of whether the kids playing together there are supervised well, and they should be, but we must figure that out because the benefits of doing it that way are so powerful. Okay. Sorry, so, 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 so. I just have to say this. Sorry. Yeah, that's all fine for making it, but what about insights and connecting ideas and suddenly realizing something about the human condition? Isn't that as, more, as exciting as building bricks? I mean, isn't it, isn't it as important? But you don't need have, your hands. You don't that. need your hands. Well, who's, yeah. Well, so, 
No, I just mean second life's just you just can't touch it. I mean, you don't you don't argue that you need to be able to touch no, it. No, 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 no. I'm just I'm just saying that I wouldn't put a premium necessary or high priority on building things in Lego like way. Perhaps this is a gender difference, but more. My own view is that what's really exciting is when you can have, connect up ideas and have insights such as you get when you read a book and you then stare at them and think, wow, and you stare at them all for five minutes while all the connections are formed and cross-referenced against the existing ones. So I don't, laudable though building things is, physically, I wouldn't say this is the only thing that one should encourage. Yeah, it's, it's also a good thing, not, not the only thing on Second Life. Um, the gentleman over there and the gentleman in white, so we're slightly blinded by that light, but I think that that's everyone that... Okay, the lady in the back, and then we're going to come down to a fur, and that's the end. So, yeah, I'm being told to get a move on here. Uh, so, keep your questions and your responses very short, please, otherwise I'm in trouble. This is a quick... Uh, sorry, this is a quick practical question for Elon, uh, less philosophical than some of the other questions. Um, you're probably the only person in the room here with a... Uh, Orbital rocket, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> if I wanted to build a plane, I have to get permission from the uh, CAA or the FAA. If I want to build a rocket, who do I ask for permission? Sure. Um, well, the, the F in the US, uh, the FAA governs uh, uh, civil space flight. Um, and then if you, but if you're doing a mission for the military or for NASA, they are their own governing agency. Island. A big one? From a tropical island, there's uh, no one oh, to ask. Um, well, yeah, the, it's part of the Kwajalein uh, Atoll of the Marshall Islands, and the Kwajalein Atoll is a U.S. military base, uh, so it's considered U.S. territory, and we required uh, FAA permission to do the launch. Um, the gentleman with the white shirt. I was going. Is this on? Yep. I, my original question was going to be. Um, could you both react to the divorce? And I think we heard Philip. But if, that, if that's not something you want to comment on, either of you, I'd, be, I'd also be interested in terms of the use of the internet and technologies for educational purposes, which seems to have an enormous amount of untapped potential. Okay, yeah. and you've each got 30 seconds to answer that. <laughs> well, the, uh, the simple thing I would say is there's roundabout, at this point, probably a thousand universities that are actively using Second Life for teaching. So, I mean, the, the, the numbers and the behavior speak for itself. There's a significant percentage of the activity in Second Life today of the million hours a day people spend is actually uh, education now, which has just started happening. We put voice in so you could talk, and, of course, that made that work. Um, the, you mind? the lady with the... Yeah. Uh, hello. Um, I happen to be a Greek, and I happen to be a child adolescent psychiatrist. So first of all, I can confirm that the word ecstasy is exactly the meaning that Baroness Susan Greenfield um, iterated earlier. Uh, secondly, I would like to say that as a child adolescent psychiatrist, I'm aware that the ability to put things in a framework, a conceptual framework, and to abstract as opposed to um, have a literal meaning develops after the age of six or seven. So I'm very cautious about children being in social networks and having access to material that they are unable to put into context earlier than this age. A comment on what uh, Susan Greenville said earlier. I was wondering about whether all this tendency um, about obesity and uh, not being able to enjoy the journey is about a tendency, a cultural tendency towards satisfying a need as opposed to enjoying a journey. And are we trying to satisfy sensory needs by the way we behave in terms of eating and other behaviors as opposed to um, 
enjoying a journey and enjoying relationships. But this is not an actual question. My question is... Okay, we, <laughs> I, I, we really do need yes. to end up, so please yeah. get to all um, the questions to the point. Having 900 friends in real or in virtual world, oh, how much committed can you feel to each one of them, is my question. Uh, and being accessible 24 hours 7, how much chance do you have to miss people and to be missed by people? Okay, I'm going to round up the questions and then give the panel a chance to answer. The lady in the back there um, with, yep. Thank you. And then you. Okay, um, I'm taking a bit of a risk here because um, I'd, I'd just like to put something on the table and that is um, a curiosity about shamanism and how if, if you have a curiosity about um, the potential for perhaps voyaging in virtual worlds and the potential for really harnessing imagination in a more fundamental way. My understanding um, of shamanism is it's a practice, it's a human practice that goes back 40,000 years and that it evolves um, over time. And so I just okay. wanted to put that on the table. Okay. I don't. And the final question, who's been one of the organizers of this <laughs> event? I'm going to get, take a mic, take a mic, <laughs> take a mic. Um, I wanted to bring things back to Silicon Valley, and I had a question, I have a question for Ellen and Philip Rosedale. I wanted to find out from Ellen, once you get to Mars, what next? <laughs> and Philip Rosedale, what are your future plans for Second Life? Where do you want to take it strategically? Okay, I'm going to give each of the panellists uh, max 30 seconds, I'll have 30 seconds, and then uh, we'll have a drink to celebrate this wonderful session. <laughs> Okay, so, well, Mars, it's really, it's the establishment of a, a second uh, ecology, so it's backing up the biosphere, is another way to think of it. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of, to do to ensure that the Mars is sustaining in and of itself um, without help from Earth. And, uh, anyway, and, and then beyond that, of course, other planets and whatnot, so. <laughs> okay, yep. yeah. Um, well, I've really enjoyed this evening, and I think it really shows how, I think, neuroscience and IT should get together more closely because on the one hand it does raise the obvious questions but on the other hand I think it's only by coming together that we can ask really deep questions such as where do we want to go, what do we know about the brain that could be damaged or exploited or enhanced by working with certain environments that are very unusual to us and I think we're only really just beginning um, but we must sit down and I really feel strongly we can't just say everything is good and have an unsupervised journey, both children and adults alike, into, into screen technology. I feel very sad that we've spent 5,000, 10,000 years evolving to what? Just to sit in, in a room pressing buttons. And I'm sure there must be more to things than that. It must be a means to an end. You know, one thing I'd focus on is the 900 friends. You know, Second Life is a literal environment. I don't think people's uh, deep interactions with each other there uh, necessarily are with more friends. The, the thing that's so incredible about Second Life is those friends can be 6,000 miles away, which you're never going to have in reality, but I think the intensity of interaction is actually probably about the same as real life. It's not, you're not like making hundreds of friends that you're somehow able to manage uh, context and knowledge with. Um, on where Second Life is going, uh, you know, in, in, in relevance to this conversation, I genuinely believe that it's a social good, and so I'd like to see a billion people using it. Well, I, I really do want to, on behalf of all of us, um, Thank the panelists. This has been a hugely uh, <laughs> 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 um,
just before you, uh, you all go, it's been hugely stimulating. I think um, the evidence before us is that Philip hasn't been at all impaired by spending more than four hours a day uh, on Second Life. That uh, Elon is doing much more to save the planet than to escape it uh, through Telsa and all the other things, and that Susan's going to help us work through it. I hope that we are able to create this sort of conversation uh, for a much wider audience uh, in a virtual world. I hope the 21st century school is able to go there, uh, that we're able to go there, but certainly there's been absolutely no substitute for being here together today. The panelists have been fantastically game. I've been fierce on them. I'm sorry I haven't given them more time, uh, but I do hope that all of us are able to take away from this a lot of learning and uh, a great deal of thanks to our three panelists. <laughs>